Academia is like a wave, and scientists are like many crabs taken by it, navigating from one paper to the next, through meetings and applications to the next conference. We don't often get the time to just look back at the wave's passage and reflect on how far it got us. To seize the magnitude of this big collective adventure, the cadet listens to the fantastic stories of the experienced Corsair. During a visit to the IMC, I had the chance to organize a recording session with not one, but two of these lifelong researchers. So in this bonus episode, I welcome cognitive scientists, experimental and developmental psychologists, Chris and Ute Frith, as we discuss the past 60 years of theoretical, technological and cultural changes they experienced in research, their tales will take us through the genesis of the IMC, the early days of neuroscience and the evolution of research and social cognition. Welcome to the Interacting Minds podcast. Hi, Chris. Hi, Uta. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Arno, and thank you very much for having us. We're looking forward to this chat. Me too. You are, to us at the Interactive Mind Center, the giants that we stand on. You're also a little bit like our godparents, yes, in a way. Yes, I, I, I would go with that rather than with the giants. <laughs> the giant metaphor. <laughs> I'd like to ask you how the interacting minds started. What's the origin myth? Well, I guess it started because Andreas came to London to study a new brain imaging unit from the point of view of an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Shadowed everybody, but in particular, he came to my breakfast meetings with the rest of my group. And he became very interested in the sorts of studies we were doing. And I became very interested in his approach. You know, he was asking awkward questions like, when someone's in the scanner, what are they really thinking about? And shouldn't we perhaps ask them? And we started doing things like that. And that we suddenly realized that even when we're trying to study psychology in a really traditional way, what is the subject doing? It's already a social interaction between the experimenter and what we in those days used to call the subject and we now call the participant. And that led to the paper I wrote with him about what's at the top of top-down control, which of course is not the frontal cortex, hmm. but other people, and in particular the experimenter. And we became very interested in that idea. But the most important reason was that I was told that I was about to be 65 and I had to retire. Oh, There was an opening then from the Danish Research Foundation, and I became the Niels Bohr visiting professor for five years. And at that point, it was called, I think, the Interacting Minds Group. And we were very excited by this because one of the things with brain imaging is that we suddenly realized you had to have lots and lots of collaborators because to do brain imaging, you need a physicist, you need a radiologist, a psychologist, a statistician, and so on, all working together. But coming to Aarhus, the possibility for diverse interactions multiplied dramatically. So we suddenly found ourselves interacting with semioticians and we didn't actually know what, <laughs> know what they were, and theologians as well as brain images. I think my, my story fits in with what Chris has just been saying. Again, I met Andreas 
socially and really liked him and liked his ideas. I also um, was told to retire at 65 and was very eager to do something new and different. And this fitted incredibly well. I was also very um, excited by the idea to go to a different country, maybe find out about a different culture that we didn't really know about. And um, had great positive expectations from and and they were all fulfilled i think that that was the nice thing so um from from the very beginning we felt great excitement about a new venture new things new people that we met and we had wonderful visitors as well you know it wasn't just an existing group it was a kind of growing changing group uh-huh. and every new visitor and we did we did have you know important people coming, like um, Giacomo Rizzolatti, I, w- I particularly oh. recom- uh, remember, and Jovi Gago Tsipra, for example, from Budapest, I remember very well, where we got really, again, from the outside, injections of new ideas in very different fields. It all seemed, yes, that there was an, a new way of approaching old questions by being very open to people from other disciplines for, who were, you know, different ages, different countries, different interests. Uh-huh. But that's when we started properly interacting with philosophers because there was Jakob Hovi, who was then in Aarhus, and we used to go to his philosophy of mind seminars, and we usually got lost because, as you know, in this campus it's impossible to find buildings and we were deeply impressed because we'd arrive about five minutes late and as we came through the door they switched from danish to english just to accommodate accommodate us i think but we were also amazed that jacob talked about our work to the philosophers that was also a different way of looking at what we were doing Uh, could it really be interesting to them and um, what did they say well, it felt very good. It felt like, well, we've put something out there in the world which you didn't know where it would, would go, and maybe people would criticize it, fine, try and replicate it, and perhaps not managing. And we, we thought, you know, it's the usual thing that happens with uh, new work that you put out. Uh-huh. Um, but this was really being taken seriously as an object of uh, conversation, and uh, not only, but of thought so we were very um got a somewhat different perspective even of our own work so uh, i'm assuming that you were part of the lab that andreas visited yes do you remember what you were studying at the time the study that he was directly involved with we were very interested in theory of mind as it is called and we did a particular study where you couldn't really look at people interacting in a scanner so you had one person in a scanner you were scanning and they were playing rock, paper, scissors, and we had different conditions. This was, I say, was a PET study, not an fMRI study. Uh-huh. So it was a long time ago. So in one condition, they thought they believed they were interacting with a person. Another condition, they believed that they were interacting with a, a sort of machine that was programmed in advance. And the key point was that during the 30 seconds of the scan, which is what happened in PET, the actual stimulus was exactly the same. The sequence of wins and losses was exactly the same. And so the only difference was what they, who they believed they were interacting with. And we call this, we said we were examining the attentional stance, which is a thing invented by the philosopher Dennett, 
So you have an intentional stance when you believe you're interacting with a person and you have to take into account their mental states. So that was the task. We found indeed that when they thought they were interacting with a person, the so-called mentalizing areas of the brain lit up more than when they thought they were interacting with a machine, even though the actual stimulation was exactly the same. And I guess from that that was the beginning of our saying, why can't we study social interactions properly rather than just having these made-up situations? And indeed, there was a whole business then, a lot of social cognition. For example, the people were very interested in emotions and the way they would do it is you would see a, a fearful face and see how you responded to this. Yeah. But it's a, what I call a one-way thing. In real life, when you see a fearful face, you also show fear and that feeds back to the person who's looking at you. And you can get interesting interactions like the feeling of embarrassment. You can imagine somebody does something annoying or inappropriate. People look cross, and his response to this is to look embarrassed in the hope that they will not be so cross to them. So you get this, what I, we call closing the loop. So there's an ongoing adaptive interaction between the two people, and that's what we wanted to study. And indeed, that's precisely what we started to do at the IMC uh -huh. when we arrived. And just going going back a little bit from, uh, you know, you're mentioning that you were very, very uh, engaged then in studying theory of mind or mentalizing. I think that in our own history is, is where our collaboration really took off. We did occasionally write something together, just, just the odd paper, hardly at all, over the first 20 years, 30 years of our And we were always lives. in different yeah, departments, different even things. in different universities, yeah. So I was, you know, interested in child development and abnormalities of development and in particular dyslexia and mm -hmm. autism. And of course, we talked about our work all the time. But I think with the study of mentalizing in autism, you immediately, I believe, Chris, thought, oh, this is very relevant to schizophrenia, but it almost is like an opposite problem to what happens in autism. And from then on, we, we were very excited by this idea. It was, it was a new idea. It was, uh, it was just around at the time. And it seemed also exactly at the same time when, this, when scanning of, you know, live uh -huh. brains just became possible. So all this suddenly made us think, would it be possible to see what happens in the brain when we do this strange thing, attributing mental states to others? And are, I, I think you presented some kind of future project outline to lots of psychiatrists at one occasion who couldn't believe that you were talking about oh, this kind of well, thing. No, no. So I was in this brain imaging unit, which started with PET, which is positron emission tomography. And then we got a very large grant from the Wellcome Trust to move to a new institution and have functional MRI. And we had a grand opening dinner where people were invited from all over the world. And we had to give short presentations. And that's when I presented the as yet unpublished stuff about theory of mind and the brain. So one of the people who came told me that they all thought I was mad. <laughs> because how could you possibly study something as fluffy and philosophical as this in the scanner? In the brain, you know. yeah. So we didn't, we didn't luckily uh, know this at the time. <laughs> we just did it. We just went ahead. But um, it's a highly robust finding that has that, been replicated. That, that was just so lucky. I think in, in many ways we were very fortunate. Yeah. 
And also we had the right collaborators at the yeah, time. Yeah, but well, that depended on, I say, this is a start of being very multidisciplinary. Uh-huh. Indeed. So so we also kept on developing with collaborators, this is in, in London, different tasks that could be used to probe theory of mind. I mean, I just mentioned Alan yeah. Leslie, uh, Francesca Happy, uh, Simon Baron cohen and many others. Many of these were PhD students who developed wonderful new probes for mentalizing, which could be used in autism, and ideally they could also be used in the scanner. Huh. So, for example, we had um, Francesca Happy's stories. She invented strange stories, as she called them, uh, which um, in in order to understand them, you had to attribute mental states to the characters in the story. And the simple question after that story was, why did she say that? <laughs> no, the one I remember is um, a burglar, you know, comes out of a house with his swag, as we call it, and he's walking along the street, and he something falls out of his bag, and there's a policeman behind him who says, wants to, you know, say you drop something, and says, stop. And the burglar turned around and says, fair cop, gov, I admit I'm guilty. And the question is, why does he say that? And that mm. depends on the burglar having the false belief that the policeman knows he's a, a burglar. A burglar a yeah. uh-huh. That was a sort of one example. Yeah. yeah. But this was then contrasted with other stories, which were just about physical cause and effect. And um, in fact, again, using PET scan, where you had a tiny bit of time before the answer to that question, showed a difference between these two types of stories and between some kind of random sentences that were a, a control condition where you also asked a question about what happened uh-huh. in one of these and sentences. I must say the most so. difficult material to develop was the random sentences. So I wanted to ask you on that, we can use new tools to sort of probe for our theories, but often those tools also feed back into how we conceptualize our object of study. And since you've been working with a lot of different tools, I imagine you've been through a few cycles of this technological innovation and how that feeds back into the way we think of the mind and the brain? Well, I guess, yes, the most dramatic new tool was brain imaging. Mm -hmm. And before brain imaging, we were very keen on what was called cognitive neuropsychology. And this was based on studies of neurological patients with known lesions. And they had these wonderful box and arrow diagrams about cognition, which I guess the most sophisticated were in reading. Can you, you yes. say something about reading? That's yes, your... yes. Um, you know, the ability to read non-words, artificially made up yep. words, um, could be completely distinguished from the ability to read known words, which seems an extraordinary uh, phenomenon, but has to do with English orthography. Mm. Of of course, in the end. And in dyslexia, the hallmark really was the ability to read non-words, or rather the the very disability Uh in reading non-words. So this is one of those very specific findings that that influenced us very much. But there were different kinds of brain injuries, so some people would lose the ability to read non-words, or they could still read words, and there was a particularly interesting phenomena, again, this is adults with brain damage, where they would 
get the right meaning but the wrong word. So you would show them the word clarinet and they would say oboe or something. Mm. And this was the idea that you have a semantic root. So you see the word, it gives you a, some, the semantics and that goes to speech. Whereas you have another root, you see the word, you know the sound basis because of the letters and you could damage these independently. And people had these box and arrow diagrams about these different routes to reading. Uh-huh. And then they would, on the basis of lesion studies, they would try and say this box is in the parietal cortex and this box is in the motor cortex or something. Mm-hmm. Like. And then suddenly imaging came. Yeah. <laughs> and you could see what was happening in the brain. How did that work out? It, it wasn't boxes, really. That was hmm? disappointment that we didn't see these clear boxes uh-huh. in different <laughs> brain regions. Very, very, um, very inconvenient. But we did, we did very quickly fall on our feet and say, oh, well, things, of course, are more complex uh, uh-huh. than you thought at first. And it was still possible to get very meaningful separations of networks. Yeah, yeah, And that, again, was very, very helpful for thinking about what was the basis for different abilities, cognitive ability, for example, spatial abilities or particular language processes. So, yes, there has been a, a, a kind of reciprocal uh, But I guess the, fe- the feedback, as it were, from the brain is you started thinking, which is probably wrong, because you had these little modules and then particularly in vision you had a... There was a bit of the brain that was for colour, another bit of the brain that's for movement, another bit of the brain that's for shape. Uh-huh. And you started thinking in those terms. So I guess when we started doing sort of cognitive analysis of a task, we would try and fit it into these little modules. Which, which can get you off the ground yeah. at least, but then you have to really think differently. But and, no, particularly when you get to what the frontal things. lobe does, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. That's what I was about to ask you. So yeah. when it comes to social interactions. Can we have such a detailed cognitive neuroscience account such as we have in vision and not, perception? Not yet. And, not and it's, it, it really not. is very, very complex because we have to go beyond the individual mm-hmm. and uh, we, we can get some help. That's what, you know, would be used all the time from different pathologies we can observe. You know, you can observe people who might lack Empathy, for example, which is a, a very strongly assumed social emotion. So you could say, what, what is empathy all about? What, what do we mean by it? Is it really true that we feel another person's pain? And first of all, we would say we probably don't believe there's a, an empathy bit of the brain. But the other thing which we can go back to is because you mentioned Mritzalati visiting, and that, was a, that had a huge impact on our beliefs about social cognition because of the discovery of mirror neurons. The relevance to imitation. We know, yeah. we, we know that imitation was an, an, a very important tool for learning, for social learning. There was a lot of controversy. So remember, the mirror neuron is a neuron that fires when the monkey picks up a peanut and also when the monkey sees the experiment at picking up a peanut. And some people said this explains how theory of mind works. The mirror neurons enables you to read the intentions of the person you're looking at. And other people said, this is nonsense and mirror neurons don't exist. I mean, there was that extreme yeah. polarization to begin with. But then we've, we, we were certainly involved in these studies of empathy where you got the equivalent of mirror neuron for action. You've got a, mirror, a sort of mirror system for emotion so that when you see a fearful face, you feel frightened. When you see a disgusted face, you feel disgust. And it was a similar sort of mirroring. And... This is certainly a feature of social cognition, but we believe that it's 
only one aspect, and it probably doesn't relate to mentalizing. So with the mirror neurons, it's a step in the direction of working out why somebody is doing something. But you need more to work out their intentions for doing it. So the mirror system will light up when you see action, even if it's robotic action. Uh But the mentalizing system only works up, right lights up if it's a human doing the action and not when a robot is doing the action, at least so far. As the robots get cleverer, this will probably change. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you think we, now that we have all this hype over artificial intelligence and we get machines that are better and better at predicting us, would we perceive machine differently? Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Yes, yes, this is actually a very exciting phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And we we do need these uh, machines to to act as carers for us. And and we don't have enough... Young people anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And for lonely people, they need companions. So, yes, I think there is a future there that's very, very interesting. So I believe this leads us to the predictive processing framework, in yeah, a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. that you've been pretty instrumental in establishing. Am I correct? <laughs> <laughs> I would say no. I would say I recognized a good bandwagon and we jumped on it. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about it? <laughs> so in my task, which was hide and seek, I'm trying to predict whether my opponent is behind the wall or behind the tree, And I have a prediction. I say, he's going to be behind the wall, and then he's behind the tree. Mm. And I update my thing and say, well, in that case, he's probably more likely to be behind the tree next time. Although if I'm very sophisticated, I can say, he's probably trying to make me think he's going to be behind the tree. But that's a simple version of a prediction error. And most tasks in the real world can be solved with a very simple learning algorithm that just responds to prediction errors. And the interesting question, of course, is where does the prediction come from? So in the early part of my career, Mm. I was in a unit with many different disciplines, but a small number of people, and our brief was ready to discover the biological basis of schizophrenia. And we did some very early scanning and so on. But I was particularly interested in a symptom called delusion of control, (coughs) where the patient says, I'm not controlling my movements, somebody else, there's an alien force making me do these things. And I became very interested in the mechanism of this and there's something called corollary discharge or reafference copy which is when you move your eyes oh. and this goes back to Helmholtz so when you move your eyes obviously the picture on your retina jumps about but you don't see the world jumping about so there's some stabilizing influence and the theory is that whenever you make a movement this will cause sensations, but a message is sent to the sensory system saying these sensations that you're just about to see are caused by your own movements and therefore should are not interesting. We need to separate them from things happening in the outside world. And we did this study of tickling. The idea being <laughs> the reason you can't tickle yourself is because you can predict exactly what you're going to feel because you're making the movement. Uh-huh. But if somebody else tickles you, you can't. And with Sarah Jane Blakemore and Daniel Warput, we invented a system of robots. So you could tickle yourself by moving a robotic arm, which moved another robotic arm. If you delayed the movement by 200 milliseconds, the ticklishness came back. But again, that's immediately about prediction. And I hadn't thought of it in the predictive coding point of view, but as soon as I read about predictive coding, I thought, oh, this is a very similar story. And I became, we both became very interested in that perception depends upon prior beliefs, not just on incoming evidence. 
yeah, that has been a, a theme for, for a very long time that we said, you know, we can't just look at, you know, input and output because there's the, the brain that's doing things without a apparent input there at the time. Uh-huh. And um, I was particularly interested in expectations that might be there from birth, or not necessarily from birth, but innate. That was always sort of a suspicion. I think we, we, we're forgetting about that because sort of the second half of the 20th century was all about learning, all about experience and building up from what many people sort of vaguely thought was actually a tabula rasa to begin with. Well, that's been really then quite often attacked. Mm. And I, I also felt uh, just, I suppose, from from really observing how development proceeds and even from our own children, that you could see there were certain things that seemed to happen no matter what you did. And you could observe in many experiments um, that there must be some uh, built-in expectations about the world and which would speed up your learning. And on the opposite side, you could also say there are certain things that you just can't learn or take you far too long so you will give up. And that, that is uh, feeding in also into this uh, predictive um, coding framework, except that there the idea of whether or not the expectation is innate doesn't, doesn't play any role whatsoever. But it seemed to me an interesting um, question yeah. to say perhaps some of these developmental disorders I was very interested in, like dyslexia and autism, mm-hmm. have to do with these expectations not yeah. being quite... Uh, strong enough to to put learning onto a fast track. So in one case, the social learning would be somehow really, really affected in a in a way that that makes it so slow and so painful that you know it really takes a long time. And in the other case, in the dyslexia case, uh, the, the there was some suspicion that it has to do with language processing, speech processing, that made you um, not really uh, able to learn to read these non-word, these nonsense words, which I referred mm. to earlier, so that, again, you were on a track that made you uh, a, a slow learner and an effortful learner, and you would not really enjoy reading um, to the extent that other people enjoyed. So if you could learn it in the end, that that was the case for, for most dyslexics. They they became quite good at reading when you just gave them standard tests. But they said, well, I am still dyslexic because, you know, to me, that's really an effort. And if I'm a little feeling a little bit ill or feverish, I can't do it at all because I won't have the strengths. I mean, there's an interesting history which I had to read about because I was asked to review a book about this, which is a history of psychiatry. And there have been enormous progress. But the sad thing for psychiatrists, as soon as progress is made, the problem ceases to be a psychiatric one. So in the 19th century, many of the beds in psychiatric hospitals were filled with people with tertiary syphilis. What was it called? General paresis paresis of the insane. And they discovered it was caused by this barochete and they could cure it. So it ceased to be a psychiatric problem and became a neurological problem. And similarly with epilepsy, epileptic were part of psychiatry and were mad, and then they discovered that it was caused by these, um, what do you call them? Oscillators. Yes, but also you would actually have 
tiny bits of brain damage which would actually mm. serve as a focal, focal the focus of, of this happening. Yeah. And again, it becomes part of neurology. So psychiatrists are always left with the things that we don't understand. Is there a tendency to try to push every mental illness oh, towards yes. neurology? Yes, I think from a medical point of view, I would oh. say. On the one yeah. hand, towards yeah. the neurology, and the other hand, towards what is part of normal variation. Yeah. So um, that seems strange because you should have a middle ground. Yeah, towards maybe social. Yes, issues. even social things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But even that, I mean, we didn't talk about that, but when Uta began, autism was thought to be caused by refrigerator mothers. Yeah, nothing to do with the brain, nothing to do with any biological genetic causes, but with social psychogenic causes. You know, if only you had been warmer towards a child, more loving Maybe it wouldn't have turned out like that, but okay, that, so that, was, that was a models. pernicious theory. I wanted to get back to your history in science. You had about 60 years of career. You must have seen a lot of changes yeah, in those 60 yeah. years, like institutionally, technologically, culturally. How has that affected your research practice? I mean, the big changes, there were huge changes in our lifetime. So, for example, in 1965, when I was starting my PhD, we were the first psychology department in the UK to get a computer, mm -hmm. a Link 8. And what memory did it Had have? Had 16K of memory. <laughs> it cost about as much as a house and was this... And, and you needed a whole room, which yeah, had to be air-conditioned. And I learned to do machine code sort of thing, and it completely changed the sorts of experiments that I could do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because previously I was doing motor skill learning with basic with a gramophone turntable, which you had to check this target on. And now I could have a screen and I could make the target move anywhere I liked on the screen and you followed it with a joystick. How does that work? Well, you know, a record player. Yes, you have yes. a record player. You have a metal disc on the edge of it and it goes round and round and round. You have a metal stylus, which is hinged. Okay. And you have to keep the metal stylus. Your task is to learn how to keep the metal stylus on the disc. And because it's metal, it makes a contact. Electrically, you can measure how much of the time were you actually in contact. Ah. And it sounds very easy, but this is actually quite a difficult task. Yeah. And the most extraordinary thing was that if you have a long break, at the beginning of the next period, you're actually better than you ever were previously, which we used to call reminiscence. And there's some sort of mm. learning going on, perhaps. But that's what we did. We had a yeah. whole complicated computational theories about how this worked, which no one can remember. <laughs> <laughs> See, yes. that's very interesting to me, like referring back to what we said earlier about um, technology and also theory. Also, the, the, the technology of statistical analysis changed yes, completely. Like, mm. Yes, because again, when we, we started, started yes, they had these very big calculating machines and they were doing principal components analysis. There were two ladies with this machine, and they both had to do the... In your department? In, my, in our department. And you had two, because they both went through the whole thing. And if they got the same answer, that was fine. But if they didn't, they had to... Just start it again. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. So um, it, were, was, it was amazing once we got programs that give you t-test answers or something, and people were very suspicious of that. Said, ah, I think people will just do as many tests as they can, and then they choose a significant and they, one. And it was and they true. Did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, guess I remember there was this wonderful statistics book by Tukey, which was basically all about how to do statistics on the back of an envelope. <laughs> But and certainly with my tracking stuff, I was now able to have my targets moving 
in sine waves or something, then I could mm. do a Fourier analysis and see whether this was present in the movement of the tracker, which would completely be poss- impossible. And with reading, you you could suddenly uh, measure eye movements. Oh, yes, that was wonderful. Oh, yeah. it was wonderful. Or you could make uh, letters appear gradually yes. on the screen. So you were reading things on a screen, and they were actually changing the words. And, and you could measure how far, because you're, you have a rather small Fourier fixation point, you could see how far outside the fixation point did it make any difference, that they were actually wrong before you got to it, as it were. And, and lots of other incredible technical innovations happened, also for speech perception, for example, yeah. and uh, how you could make different contrasts that you never thought of before. And it was the same. I mean, with images, yeah. And it kept on developing. So, with the early, when we first did PET scanning, which would have been in the ninth, late eighties, yeah, you would do one scan, and it would take eight minutes for that data to be downloaded to the storage. <laughs> so you had to have eight minutes between each scan, which was lucky because that's the time the radiation takes to decay. So. Mm. And then MRI came in, but by um, ten years later or something, by that time you could download it instantly. Yes, and we did marvel at that. We yeah. said it was absolutely wonderful. But um, you know, the technology progress is not necessarily accompanied by theoretical progress to uh-huh. some extent. No, that, that's not worth it. You've got all this data. Influence, but not necessarily progress. No, yeah, yeah. I think we have learned much more. And, and of course, this eventually led to models of learning. You could actually program computer to play a simple version of stone, paper, scissors with mm. me and that sort of thing. But you could actually model it. This is where the prediction errors ought to be, and this is how big they ought to be. In this field of social cognition and studying interacting minds, what are the technologies that pique your interest right now? I think this, it's very dangerous to make these sort of predictions for the future. I think it is, it is clear that there are a, a lot of very talented young people around, which we also found, that, again, at our visit here to um, IMC. And this this gives us a lot of hope and, and a lot of pleasure as well. So rather than saying, oh, we think we can bet on the best possible thing, it's actually the diversity of approaches that excites us. And, you know, in a way, they're all in competition with each other, in a, in a nice competition. We will look forward to seeing what will come out, you know, which, which will be, in the end, uh, seen to be as more productive than another. But at the beginning, you can't tell. No, but I think there are technological advances, which means you can look at much more interesting and realistic interactions between people. So in terms of brain imaging, you have things like, what's it called, NIRS, Near Infrared Spectroscopy, Uh which are things you can wear on your head and actually walk about with, so you can have much more realistic interactions. And there's all this stuff with um, motion capture, where again you can measure interactive behaviour much more accurately than we could before. And the only problem with all these exciting develops in technology is, does anyone know how to analyse the data? (laughs) But and we're don't... very keen on, we don't believe in big data, or at least we don't believe in what's it called data fundamentalism. Having lots of data is not enough. We, but uh-huh. we like theories. We like theories, you need. And they are often wrong, but we still like them. <laughs> yeah, like this exploration is necessary yeah. in yeah. the first place. So now we've discussed the influence of technology on your research, but what about the cultural and institutional changes in science that you've witnessed? Well, we have become more aware of what's now called research culture, 
of course, when we started, we didn't know there was such a thing. But um, we we started off being perfectly happy to, well, I was perfectly happy to publish one paper a year. Hmm. Maybe, you know, sometimes no paper because it wasn't good enough. The paper, you mean. Yeah. The paper yeah. uh, was rejected <laughs> by a journal. I remember very well this happening to me. And I said, well, yeah, that's rightly so. Rightly say. so. And I did not send it to another journal. It didn't occur to me that I would try and publish it anyway, because that it was just not good enough. And, of course, research, researchers can't be at their peak every year. That's just ridiculous to assume. You would sometimes have good ideas and less good ideas. Sometimes you're lucky, not so lucky. Uh, also, we had rather less emphasis on collaboration. It was much more wow. a lonely business, so even more fluctuations. And what we have seen is, yes, more and more pushing towards more and more publications. So um, that, that's been a big change. And, and more and more journals, so you can get anything yes, published. Yes, you can yeah. get anything. Oh. And, and also more authors on the paper. More no, more. I was, what I noticed surprisingly is when I did my PhD, I published two or three or four papers as I was sole author. My supervisor had no interest in being a co-author. Oh. And that has gradually changed, and you get yeah. more and more authors on a paper. And it is certainly also to do with the funding structure because in order to get more funding, you know, being much more insecure about whether you were an established researcher or not, uh, you had to to prove that you published these papers. So your name had to be on that paper as well as the person who did the work, the person who applied for the money had to be on on the paper there's also a lot more researchers now that's right this should all be a good thing except it isn't because there is just too much out there you could never read it all you could never absorb it all so we get this strange phenomenon of reviews and meta reviews and we are very suspicious of them because they might not distinguish good papers from not so good papers. They put it all together and hope yes, that the noise a, will go. There was a phrase we yeah. had in the olden days, which was garbage in, garbage out. Which was and that's what we still believe is is still the case. Yeah. And and uh, big data is, is, is another candidate for garbage in, garbage out. But, you know, it doesn't solve the problems. So one of the things that I became aware of that may be it is a good thing to slow down. I'm very keen on just putting on the table the idea that we should have slow science. That is better that the masses of more and more studies, more and more papers would be slowed down. And and that's a, a, a difficult um, task to set people because how, how on earth are you going to persuade funding agencies that quality matters more than quantity? Funding agencies and um, academic institutions everywhere thought it's a wonderful idea to have just a number of publications, a number of citations. It's easy to impact track. factor, just objective criteria to uh-huh. say whether some, somebody should be funded is good or less good. And and this is um, this may have worked at the beginning, but it's a system that's open to being gamed, and it uh-huh. is. So it's no longer terribly meaningful to say how but it is partly, as you say, due to there being so many scientists. Yeah. And I think we were talking about it earlier. If you have a, a group 
and all five of you are authors of this paper, you need five other papers so that everybody can be first author. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Multiplication. So I think it would be useful to have a rethink about this particular research culture and allow people to think more about quality. So where should we act first? <laughs> Is it at the institutional level, at the individual level, funding level? All at once, all at once. And I think it needs the will to do this. Uh -huh. um, it's very easy for established senior scientists to say, I'm not going to publish so much, but it's very difficult for the yeah. more yes. junior. Yeah. So but these senior scientists don't usually set a very good model. No, no, unfortunately not. Yeah. Yeah, it remains to be seen what alternatives there are. I'm wondering about the form of papers themselves. Should so, we allow people to have more free forms or should we standardize it even more than it already is? It's pretty standard standard in psychology is, at least. Yeah, right? yeah. Has become pretty I'm, standard. I'm I'm certainly dubious of this tendency to remove all the details either to the end of the paper or mm -hmm. even to supplementary material, because actually it's the details that are the most important really bit. So that's a, I would like to go back in that direction. I wanted to also ask, you are officially retired? Oh my God, yes. And yet you're here? <laughs> and we're talking about science, and we've talked before going into this podcast about publications you're working on right now. How is life as a retired scholar? Wonderful. Yes, I officially retired for the first time in 2007, which is quite a long time ago. <laughs> I was not even a high school graduate yet. <laughs> so um, we are really, really not perhaps just grandparents, but great grandparents of <laughs> you. So um, we, we can... Uh, I say that with a lot of respect. <laughs> <laughs> we can take the back seat and rather than being a backseat driver who always says oh you shouldn't do this you should do this we just enjoy being taken to you know along different routes and we, we trust that you know interesting things will appear and of course, i mean the, the race always straightforward things that are nice about being retired that you don't have to apply for money you don't have to look after your students though that's not true you have to even the old ones are constantly writing saying can you please write this you know the, mm. <laughs> But there's much less, res we have power without responsibilities. I, I question the power. <laughs> you have a little bit of this wise elder in the village vibe here. Yeah. People book times to discuss their projects with you. and Not to take them. us too seriously, we hope. I think <laughs> we always think, you know, take it with a grain of salt. There, there aren't such, you know, uh, amazing insights and things that you need to know about mm. in order to progress. Last question. What subject rocks your boat these days? What are you passionate about? I'm currently extremely interested in sort of culture and the brain, but I'm reducing that to something like how do instructions work? Mm. And I'm particularly interested in rules. In fact, I'm just reading a book about rules. How is it that people can tell you something and then it changes the way you, your brain works? And one of the features of this is actually these prediction errors that some should be ignored and how do we know which and i think rules sort of are a way of telling people which things you should ignore but i would love to know how that actually happens in detail in the brain 
I'm disturbed by geopolitical events that are happening at the moment. We have uh-huh. a war in Europe and we don't know what to do about climate change, or at least we might know, but we're not doing anything about that. So these are the sort of uh, part of the dark side of our social nature. And I wish we would make some forays into uh, understanding this a bit better so that we could do something about it. And I, th- I think we, we have been looking at the sunny side of social interaction a lot and this was very important but we have to look at the dark side as well thank you very much thank for you. your time and your wise words thank you for listening This podcast is edited and produced by Kirsi Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermeer, and Savannah Schulz. Music by Simon Kag. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.